Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good Monday morning. It's Joe Wiegand coming to you from Medora, North Dakota, with Teddy Talks. Our chance each morning, Monday through Saturday, to hear from the words of Theodore Roosevelt and uh, to celebrate uh, some of his history, celebrate uh, some of the history of our country. So uh, we've got a wonderful week of programs ahead, and some of them will be a sampling, and others will be uh, at-length readings of some of Theodore Roosevelt's uh, most important and most celebrated speeches. Most especially, mark your calendar for Thursday, April 23rd. We all uh, perhaps are familiar with the man in the arena. It is not the critic who counts. Perhaps the most famous portion of a Theodore Roosevelt speech, uh, that speech was given on April 23rd at the Sorbonne, the University of Paris, as Theodore Roosevelt and Mrs. Roosevelt toured the continent of Europe following his year-long hunt in British East Africa. The speech is called Citizenship in a Republic. And I've always found portions of that speech, which was so wonderfully accepted uh, uh, and celebrated in France that thousands of copies were uh, printed and sent to French schools and schoolchildren. The uh, anniversary of that speech will be uh, Thursday, April 23rd, and I found portions of that speech to be just as compelling, just as inspiring as that portion that we now know as the man in the arena. So please mark your calendar for Thursday especially, or, or come back and, and hear that speech if you have a chance uh, uh, at some other time later in the week. We start today on April 20th uh, with uh, a Teddy Roosevelt sampler. Uh, in a way, uh, uh, by uh, reading some of the criticisms uh, that were leveled against uh, Theodore Roosevelt by Eugene Debs, the socialist candidate for uh, president in 1900, 1904, 1908, 1912, and 1920, the last run from federal prison, uh, and yet uh, his highest vote total at that time as well. Tuesday, tomorrow, April 21st, the duty of every American, a speech given at his home, Sagamore Hill, on the date April 17, 1917, uh, but uh, days after America's entry into World War I under Wilson. Wednesday, April 22nd, Theodore Roosevelt and the Badlands, an opportunity for me to go off calendar and go back to some of the wonderful things that Theodore Roosevelt wrote about this region of uh, the Badlands of what would become North Dakota upon statehood in 1889, all one Dakota territory uh, during his uh, ranching time. At this point, let me pause. Today's uh, presentation, uh, my heart is heavy uh, for the people of Nova Scotia, for the people of Canada, uh, uh, shooting over the weekend uh, the death in the line of duty of a 23-year veteran of the Canadian Royal Mounted Police. And uh, this place, Medora, uh, we love our Canadian neighbors. Uh, we fly the Canadian flag. Uh, folks come down from uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan and 
and uh, British Columbia, out from uh, Winnipeg and, and uh, southwestern Ontario. Theodore Roosevelt's colleagues here, his, his friends and, and lifelong uh, uh, friends after his ranching time. Uh, Bill Merrifield, Joe and Sylvain Ferris, uh, Marshal Seth Bullock. These were men from Canada who came to make their fortunes uh, here in the Badlands and the Black Hills. So uh, a salute to our friends in Canada. Uh, we're with you. Uh, Thursday, April 23rd, as I mentioned, Citizenship in a Republic, the April 23rd speech given in 1910 in France. Friday, April 24th, I think equally special, two briefer speeches. You'll need to have your patient listening ears on Thursday the 23rd, but on the 24th, laying of the cornerstone of the gateway to Yellowstone National Park at Gardner, Montana on April 24th, 1903. We remember it today as Roosevelt Arch. Uh, the words uh, across the top of the arch, for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. But taken from the Organic Act, creating Yellowstone, our first national park in 1872, and repeated in the uh, Act of 1916, creating the National Park Service. And just think uh, that speech on the 24th, given by the president after spending nearly two weeks uh, camping and sleeping out in the wilderness and observing the uh, wildlife of Yellowstone National Park. On that same date in 1906, remarks by President Theodore Roosevelt on the occasion of the reinterment of the remains of John Paul Jones, uh, the uh, hero of our Revolutionary War, uh, his uh, body being uh, buried and eventually uh, uh, being forgotten where it was buried in Paris, France. Theodore Roosevelt uh, informed his ambassador to France his first and foremost duty was to locate that uh, unmarked grave. Uh, that was accomplished. The remains of John Paul Jones identified uh, uh, through uh, uh, wounds uh, he had sustained, uh, dental work uh, he had done. Uh, those remains brought back and now lying in state in his tomb beneath the chapel, which was built during Theodore Roosevelt's presidency uh, at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. So a couple of wonderful speeches on Friday, April 24th. Saturday, April 25th, we celebrate the 73rd anniversary of the creation of Theodore Roosevelt National Memorial Park on April 25th, 1947, after a five-year campaign by North Dakota Representative William Lemke of Fargo. President Truman established the South Unit of Theodore Roosevelt National Memorial Park, the only national memorial park ever established. On this date in uh, Theodore Roosevelt history, in American history, uh, April 20th, uh, the publication in 1907, and it will be the main body of my reading this morning, highly critical and uh, oh, uh, appropriately uh, inflammatory, Roosevelt and His Regime, a scathing article written by Eugene Debs, uh, the titular head of the Socialist Party, the man I mentioned uh, running for the uh, presidency five times in six elections as the head of the socialist ticket. Uh, he lambastes uh, the president for prejudging Charles Moyer, William Haywood, and George Pettibone of Colorado, leading officials of the Western Federation of Miners and the International uh, Workers of the World, uh, the Wobblies, in the murder of former Idaho Governor Frank Stunenberg, uh, published in the uh, socialist uh, magazine Appeal to Reason. Uh, on April 20th, 1912, the death of Bram Stoker. Uh, you most uh, popularly remember him as the author of Dracula, originally published as The Undead, a native son of Dublin, Ireland, and an 1870 graduate of uh, the ancient Trinity College there. Bram Stoker became a uh, theater manager and writer. Uh, he died on this date, April 20th, 1912, at the age of 64 in London. He was an Irish journalist and theater critic and for 27 years, the manager of London's Lyceum Theatre, and also managed the career of the Lyceum's famous uh, actor-owner, uh, Sir Henry Irving. Uh, Irving would tour the United States with a, a, a performance troupe, uh, Bram Stoker along, and, and during these tours in New York City, um, Bram Stoker met a young Theodore Roosevelt, serving at the time as police commissioner of New York. We read from Roosevelt's uh, resignation letter from that position to take up his Navy position just the other day. 
and in his uh, diary, according to Edmund Morris, uh, Bram Stoker uh, uh, wrote that uh, after watching Roosevelt in action at a literary dinner table and afterward dispensing summary justice in the police courts, Stoker wrote of Roosevelt in his diary, quote, must be president someday, a man you can't cajole, can't frighten, can't buy. On this date, April 20th in 1912, opening day for baseball's Tiger Stadium in Detroit and Fenway Park in Boston. The first games to be played in those uh, stadiums, professional games to be played. Uh, Boston played a uh, exhibition against the Harvard squad earlier in the month of April. In Detroit, Ty Cobb and the Tigers would beat the Cleveland Naps 6-5 in 11 innings. The Red Sox that same day would beat the New York Highlanders, later in history the Yankees, in extra innings, and go on to win 105 games in a 154-game season. Representing the American League, uh, uh, they would win uh, the only eight-game World Series uh, in our history, winning uh, four games to three games and one tie versus uh, the New York Giants of the National League. The Boston ace, Smokey Joe Wood, would win three games and lose one, going two for seven at the plate. His 286 series batting average barely trailed Red Sox star batsman and future Hall of Fame center fielder Tris Speaker, who batted 300 for the series, slightly off his eventual 345 career average. Giants hurler Christy Mathewson Still, the career wins leader in National League history with 373, pitched 28-plus innings in three games with a 0.94 ERA. Matthewson received no credit after pitching all 11 innings of the second game, which was called on account of darkness, with the score knotted at six each. And he was tagged with two lost games by scores of 2-1 to one in the fifth game, and having pitched all nine previous innings, with his Giants ahead 2-1 to one in the bottom of the 10th, Matthewson's defense allowed two unearned runs, and Boston won 3-2 to two in 10 innings in the eighth game of the 1912 World Series at Fenway Park. Uh, that's for uh, Matt Costello uh, uh, this morning. Uh, Ty Cobb would join Matthewson, Walter Johnson, Hannes Wagner, and Babe Ruth in the first class of the National Baseball Hall of Fame in 1936, Trish Speaker would be elected to the Hall the following year. If you don't think I miss baseball, you're missing something. So let me add that on this date in April, April 20th, 1916, the Chicago Cubs played their first game at Wiegum Park, currently called Wrigley Field, defeating the Cincinnati Reds 7-6 in 11 innings. Uh, the Cubs would finish fifth in the National League with a record of 67 and 86. However, the Cubs won the World Series in 2016. Uh, so as any baseball fan knows, we will never again hear that the last time the Cubs won the World Series, Teddy Roosevelt was the president, which was the lead of every story when the Cubs played Cleveland in 2016. And now President Obama can carry that responsibility on into the future. On this date, April 20th, 1915, Colonel Roosevelt takes the stands, stand at the Barnes-Roosevelt libel trial in Syracuse, New York. That's Onondaga County, a beautiful part of uh, upstate New York, and uh, of course, uh, uh, home to the state fair uh, fairgrounds in, in Syracuse. Uh, the trial had been moved from Albany, New York, and Albany County, in part for the plaintiff, uh, William Barnes Jr. had been the head of the Albany County Republican Party uh, for decades and indeed uh, ran the Republican Party of the state of New York and served as the Republican National Committeeman uh, uh, during uh, the period roughly 1912 to 1915. Uh, the case moved then to Syracuse uh, by uh, a request of uh, Roosevelt's lawyers. Uh, recently, this whole story of uh, uh, Barnes suing Roosevelt for libel has been published uh, as the book For the Defense by Dan Abrams, a fellow uh, famous now as a television journalist, uh, co-written by David Fisher. 
the uh, the case hinged on a uh, July 1914 article that Theodore Roosevelt published in Outlook magazine, where he equated uh, the Tammany Hall political leader, the Democrat Charles Murphy, and William Barnes Jr., and then at trial uh, attempted to prove his case in part by showing uh, all of the state printing work that uh, Barnes had sought for his Albany Evening Journal, of which he served as uh, as owner and publisher. And the uh, the case, uh, Theodore Roosevelt and the defense was successful. It was on this day that Roosevelt took the stand in his own defense and had eight days of subsequent testimony uh, and uh, uh, the uh, uh, was uh, eventually successful in uh, being uh, found uh, not guilty or having the charges dismissed by that particular jury. With regards to libel suits, and perhaps we'll get into this a bit more in the next month where we can talk about the disposition of the Barnes v. Roosevelt case, Theodore Roosevelt initiated at least two libel suits, one as President of the United States, and doing so in federal court, leveraging a state law in New York that allowed uh, federal cases where there was some uh, incidental point uh, in New York of uh, federal uh, jurisdiction, in this case, uh, the Customs Ports and West Point itself uh, being uh, used as justification for bringing the federal suit as president. In 1911, that uh, case dismissed by the Supreme Court, uh, Joseph Pulitzer had written in uh, his paper that the uh, there had been a $40 million appropriation for the Panama Canal that had been siphoned off by J.P. Morgan, that amongst the beneficiaries was uh, the president's brother-in-law, Douglas Robinson, uh, a husband of uh, Roosevelt's sister, Corinne uh, Roosevelt Robinson. And so uh, that case was dismissed, the Supreme Court holding that there was no federal law of libel and uh, no chance then to reintroduce the case in New York court. And uh, uh, congratulations to uh, Dan Abrams and David Fisher for bringing this uh, case back to uh, public attention. In 1913, uh, a uh, case uh, where Roosevelt was the plaintiff in a libel suit against a Michigan newspaperman, an iron ore newspaper publication uh, from Ishpeming. In the 1912 campaign, this newspaper man wrote in his paper that uh, Roosevelt's uh, ruddy color, his outrageous behavior, uh, jumping on uh, tables to make speeches, uh, proved what his uh, confidants and uh, colleagues had known for decades and hidden in that uh, was that Roosevelt was a drunkard. Uh, Roosevelt sued for libel, became the first president, uh, former president at this point, to uh, approve his sobriety in a court of law and uh, uh, the uh, dispensation of the Marquette libel trial, uh, uh, successful uh, for Roosevelt in that case. When asked for his opinion on damages, Roosevelt informed the court in this case that he would like six cents, the cost of a good newspaper. And finally, this date in history, April 20th, 1918, Manfred von Richthofen, also known as the Red Baron, shoots down his 79th and 80th victims in the air, his final victories, before his death the following day over the fields of France. The romanticism of the uh, dog-fighting uh, pilots in the air, and, uh, of course, uh, Quentin Roosevelt, uh, soon thereafter, July 14th, 1918, to meet a, a similar fate uh, as a pilot in World War One. If I may, I think I'd like to uh, uh, jump right in then with uh, a reading from Eugene Debs. Oh, I don't know that it's necessarily an equal time concept, but uh, I think it's uh, interesting to point out that Theodore Roosevelt, while I do believe he is Mount Rushmore worthy and we have much uh, uh, for which to be thankful uh, from the legacy of Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, he was castigated and lambasted on the left and on the right. Uh, the fact that libel suits uh, were not only threatened but uh, prosecuted, I think is evidence of the fact that uh, there was a lot of hitting below the belt. Uh, certainly things weren't always conducted on a gentlemanly basis. In 1907, Eugene Debs, in between his presidential runs, with a long history with the Railroad Workers Union, uh, uh, having been imprisoned for six months in Woodstock, Illinois, McHenry County, 
as a result of being uh, found uh, in violation of a uh, uh, restraint, uh, an order put by the federal courts against the actions in the Pullman strike. Debs persisted in the Pullman strike and was found uh, guilty of violating this federal injunction uh, 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 to not organize uh, this uh, strike in the way that he did. So he served six months in prison, and during his six months in prison, uh, he uh, is introduced to socialist uh, literature, uh, to the writings, indeed, of Karl Marx, is given a copy of Das Kapital, uh, comes out and commits himself to the socialist cause. Uh, he has been a leader of the uh, uh, the firemen's, the uh, locomotive firemen's union. Uh, you've got engineers and firemen in the, uh, in the, in the engine of the uh, train, and the uh, uh, the unions are very powerful. Theodore Roosevelt identifies himself with these railroad workers, is very often shown in pictures, uh, greeting, shaking hands with uh, members of the crew of these railroads. I think Debs was very frustrated that this uh, Republican patrician, uh, uh, Republican president from New York City with his Boston, Harvard stamp of approval, that uh, uh, he was winning support of the working people of this country would have an overwhelming election in 1904, uh, and uh, Debs frustrated by the lack of traction his own socialist party was uh, was uh, uh, gathering as it moved along. So uh, this published uh, castigating Roosevelt for uh, a letter he had uh, made public, statements he had made public with regards to the arrest of these three union organizers uh, who had been implicated in the assassination, uh, death by explosives, of the former governor of Idaho, Mr. Stunenberg. So let's get into a, a little bit from Eugene Debs. Give some equal time to the socialists of Teddy Roosevelt's times. The words of Eugene Debs, Roosevelt and his regime, 1907, published this date, April 20th, in Appeal to Reason, the official socialist magazine. The only time in my life I ever saw Theodore Roosevelt was years before he became President of the United States. I was aboard of a train in the far west, where Roosevelt was then said to be following ranch life. And as he and several companions in cowboy costume entered the car at a station stop, he was pointed out to me. I did not like him. The years since have not altered that feeling of aversion except to accentuate it. I have since seen the nation mad with hero worship over this man Roosevelt, but I have not been impressed by it. Very great men sometimes shrivel into very small ones and finally vanish in oblivion in the short space of a single generation. The American people are more idolatrous than any heathen nation on earth. They worship their popular heroes while they last with passionate frenzy with equal madness do they hunt down the same fools who vainly try to teach them sense. Theodore Roosevelt and George Dewey as heroes, and Wendell Phillips and John Brown as fools, are notable illustrations. American history is filled with them. But my personal dislike of the cowboy in imitation, who has since become president, however justifiable, would scarcely warrant a public attack upon his official character, and this review, being of such a nature, is inspired, as will appear, by entirely different motives. There are those, and they constitute a great majority of the American people, who stand in awe of their president, supposedly their servant, but in fact their master. They speak of him with a kind of revel revel reverential adulation as a lordly personage, a superior being to be looked up to and worshipped, rather than a fellow man to be respected and loved. There are others who betray equal ignorance in a more vulgar fashion by coarse tirades, for which there is often as little excuse as there is for the extreme adulation. Regarding the President of the United States as I do, simply as a citizen and fellow man, the same as any other, I shall speak of him and his acts free alike from awe and malice. And if I place him in the public pillory, where he has placed so many others, to be seen and despised of men, it will be from a sense that his official acts, so often in flat denial of his profession, merit the execration of honest men. In arraigning President Roosevelt and his administration, I have no private spite 
nor personal grudge to satisfy, but an obligation to redeem and a principle to vindicate, I shall go about it as I would any other moral duty, asking no favors and prepared to accept all consequences. In the first place, I charge President Roosevelt with being a hypocrite, the most consummate that ever occupied the executive seat of the nation. His profession of pure politics is false, his boasted moral courage the bluff of a bully, and his square deal a delusion and a sham. Theodore Roosevelt is mainly for Theodore Roosevelt, and incidentally for such others as are also for the same distinguished gentleman, first, last, and all the time. He is a smooth and slippery politician, swollen purple with conceit. He is shrewd enough to gauge the stupidity of the masses and unscrupulous enough to turn it into hero worship. This constitutes the demagogue, and he is that in superlative degree. Only a few days ago, he appeared in a characteristic role, rushing into the limelight as necessary to him as breath. He shrieked that he and Root were horrified because of certain scandalous and revolting charges made by one of his own former political chums. Of course, he and Root of Tweed fame, the foxiest fixer of them all, were horrified because of the shock to their political virtue. But it so happened that the horror took effect only when they found themselves uncovered. The taking of Harriman's boodle for corruptly electing him president and the use of the stolen insurance funds for the same criminal purpose did not horrify the president and root, nor would they be horrified yet if they had not been caught red-handed in the act with the booty upon their persons. The cry of the exposed malefactor and all his pack of yelpers that he is the victim of a plot by his own friends and supporters the very gentleman who furnished him with free special trains, paid his campaign expenses, and in fact bought the presidency for him, is so palpably false as to be absolutely ridiculous, it only brings into bolder relief the hypocrisy and fraud it was designed to conceal. This much is preliminarily to the extraordinary official conduct of the president, which has horrified not only its victims, but millions of others, now prompts this review and protest. Something over a year ago, Charles Moyer, William Haywood, and George Pettibone of Colorado, leading officials of the Western Federation of Miners, were overpowered and kidnapped by a gang of thugs and torn from their families at night by conspiracy of two degenerate governors and another notorious crim criminal acting for the Mine and Smelter Trust, one of the most stupendous aggregations of force and plunder in all America. Every decent man and woman was horrified by this infamy, and the whole working class of the nation cried out against it. Was Roosevelt also horrified? Yes, because the Mine and Smelter Trust had kidnapped three citizens of the Republic? Oh no, the three citizens were only working cattle, and he never had any other conception of them. He was horrified because the Mine and Smelter Trust, unclean birds that feather their nests, especially in Colorado with legislatures and United States senatorships, had not killed instead of kidnapping their victims. Then and there, Theodore Roosevelt disgraced himself and his high office, and his cruel and cowardly act will load his name with odium as long as it is remembered. The Mine and Smelter Trust had put up the funds and used its vast machinery for Roosevelt, and now Roosevelt must serve it even to the extent of upholding criminals, approving kidnapping, and murdering its helpless victims. When Roosevelt stepped out of the White House and called Moyer, Haywood, and Pettibone murderers, men he had never seen and did not know, men who had never been tried, never convicted, and whom every law of the land presumed innocent until proven guilty, he fell a million miles beneath where Lincoln stood, there he grovels today with his political crimes, one after another, finding him out and pointing at him their accusing fingers. No president of the United States has ever descended to such depths as has Roosevelt to serve his law-defying and crime-inciting masters. The act is simply scandalous and without a parallel in American history. What right has Theodore Roosevelt to prejudge American citizens, pronounce their guilt, hand them over to the hangman. 
In a pettifogging lawyer, such an act would be infamous. In the president of the nation, it becomes monstrous and staggers belief. All that Roosevelt knows about Moyer, Haywood, and Pettibone, he knows from his friends, their kidnappers. The millions of working men and women embracing practically every labor union in America count for nothing with him. He is not now standing for their votes. He is fulfilling his obligation to the gentleman who put up the coin that elected him, paying off the mortgage they hold upon his administration. Theodore Roosevelt is swift to brand other men who even venture to disagree with him as liars. He, according to himself, is immaculate and infallible. The greatest liar is he who sees only liars in others. When Theodore Roosevelt, President of the United States, denounced Charles Moyer, William Haywood, and George Pettibone as murderers, he uttered a lie as black and damnable, a calumny as foul and atrocious as ever issued from a human throat. The men he has traduced and vilified, sitting in their prison cells for having dutifully served their fellow workers and having spurned the bribes of their masters, transcend immeasurably the man in the White House who with cruel malevolence of a barbarian has pronounced their doom. A thousand times rather would I be one of those men in Ada County Jail than Theodore Roosevelt in the White House at Washington. Had these men accepted, with but a shadow of the eagerness Roosevelt displayed, the debauching funds of the trust pirates, they would not now languish in felon's cells. The same brazen robbers of the people and corruptors of the body politic who put Moyer, Haywood, and Pettibone in jail also put Theodore Roosevelt in the White House. The accounts uh, for his prostituting the high office Lincoln honored and resorting to methods that would shame a Bowery Ward healer. Moyer, Haywood, Pettibone are not murderers. It is ghastly lie, and I denounce it in the name of law and in the name of justice. I know these men, uh, these sons of toil. I know their heart, their guileless nature, and their rugged honesty. I love and honor them and shall fight for them while there is breath in my body. Here and now I challenge Theodore Roosevelt. He is guilty of high crimes and deserves impeachment. Let him do his worst. I denounce him and defy him. During my recent visit at Washington, I learned from those who know him what they think of Roosevelt. Among newspaper men, he is literally despised. Their true feeling is not apparent in what they write, for they know that the slightest offense to the president is Laisse majesté and means instantaneous decapitation. For the second time, Theodore Roosevelt, President of the United States, has now publicly convicted Moyer, Haywood, and Pettibone. He has not pronounced condemnation upon Harry Thaw or any rich man charged with murder. He has, however, made a postmaster of a man at Chicago charged by the Chicago Tribune with having shot another man in a midnight brawl over disreputable women, and then used his influence to make the same man mayor of that city. Moyer, Haywood, and Pettibone, the three working men kidnapped by the Mine and Smelter Trust, have now been in jail 14 months. They have not been tried, but twice condemned by President Roosevelt, the last time but a few days ago in connection with Harriman his former political pal and financial backer. These men are in prison cells, their bodies and manacles and their lips sealed. They cannot speak for themselves. They are voiceless and at the mercy of calumny. No matter how grossly outraged, they must submit. For a man clothed with the almost absolute power of a president to strike down men gagged and bound as these men are, he must have an unspeakably brutal and cowardly nature just such a nature as the governor of an empire state must have to turn a deaf ear to the agonizing entreaties of a shrieking, shuddering woman and see her dragged into the horrors of electrocution. The true character of this man is being gradually revealed to the American people. He has never been anything but an enemy of the working class. He joined a labor organization purely as a demagogue. In all his life, he never associated with working people. His writings before he became a politician show that he held them in contempt. When he entered political life, he soon learned how to shake hands with a fireman for the camera and have his press agent do the rest. And it was this species of demagoguery, the very basest conceivable, 
that idolized him with the ignorant mass and gave him the votes of the millions he in his heart despised in his, as an inferior race. In his book on ranch life and the hunting trail, page 10, written long before he entered politics, Roosevelt reveals his intimate contempt for those who toiled. After describing cowboys when, quote, drunk on the villainous whiskey of the frontier towns, unquote, he closes with this comparison, which needs no comment. Quote, they are much better fellows and pleasanter companions than small farmers or agricultural laborers, nor are the mechanics and workmen of a great city to be mentioned in the same breath, unquote. The pretended friendship for the great body of working men who are not to be compared to drunken cowboys has served its demagogical purpose. But the final chapter is not yet written. There will be an awakening, and every official act of Theodore Roosevelt will be subjected to its searching scrutiny. He has always been on the side of capital wholly, while pretending the impossible feat of serving both capital and labor with equal fidelity, and only the deplorable ignorance of his dupes has applauded him in that hypocritical role. The anthracite miners, or their children at least, will someday know that it was President Theodore Roosevelt who handed them over to the coal trust with a gold brick for a souvenir labeled arbitration. Theodore Roosevelt is an aristocrat and an autocrat. He affected his affected democracy is spurious and easily detected. He belongs to the upper crust, and at the very best he can conceive of the working class only as contented wage slaves. No one knows better than he how easily these slaves are duped, and how madly they will cheer and follow a cheap and showy hero. The simple fact is that Theodore Roosevelt was made president by the industrial captains and the robbers in general of the working class. They picked him for a winner, and he has not failed them. Elected by the trusts and surrounded by trust attorneys as cabinet advisors, Roosevelt is essentially the monarch of a trust administration. If this be denied, Roosevelt is challenged to answer if it was not the railroad trust that furnished him gratuitously with the special trains that bore him in royal splendor over all the railways of the nation. He is challenged to publish the list of contributors to his political sewer funds amounting to millions of dollars freely used to buy the votes that made him president. Did or did not the men known as trust magnates put up this boodle, boodle drawn from the veins of labor? Will Mr. Roosevelt deny it? Did he know at the time that his man Cotillieu was holding up the trust for all they would cough up for his election? Will he dare plead ignorance to intelligent persons as to who put up the money that debauched the voters of the nation? It is true that a spasm of virtuous indignation seized him when he found that the trust has, had slipped the lucre into his slush funds when he was not looking. But this was only after he saw the people looking behind the curtain. Then he bounded to the footlights and denounced Alton B. Parker as a liar for charging that the trusts were furnishing the boodle to make him president. But no man not feeble-minded was deceived as to who was the liar. Read the Washington Press Dispatch in the Kansas City Journal of April 4th. It was declared in banking circles that light could be shed on the question of campaign contributions in 1904 if the books of the National Republican Committee were thrown open. The books will not be thrown open. Roosevelt will not allow it. He knows they contain the damning evidence of his guilt. The case is clearly stated in the platform of the Democratic State Convention of Missouri adopted in 1906, which reads as follows. We believe Theodore Roosevelt insincere. Pretending to inveigh against the crimes of trusts and corporations, he openly defended Paul Morton, when as manager of the Santa Fe Railroad, he was compelled to confess enormous rebates to the Colorado Field and Iron Company. It was Roosevelt who advanced the pernicious doctrine that you must punish the corporation, not its officials, who cause it to commit crime. It was Roosevelt who denounced large campaign contributions while his Secretary of Commerce and Labor was fleecing the corporations out of one of the biggest slush funds ever known in the history of American politics. President Roosevelt may shout liar until he turns his black in the face 
as are the cracksmen at heart who burglarized the safes of the New York insurance companies to land him in the White House while he was toying with the names of Jimmy Hyde and Chauncey Depew as pawns in the corrupt game. But the damned spot will not out until the whole truth is known and the whole crime expiated. The publication of the Roosevelt Harriman correspondence places the president in his true colors before the American people. It explains his hot haste in condemning Moyer, Haywood, and Pettibone to the gallows, and pending Taft to Idaho, sending Taft to Idaho to assure the Smelter Trust and warn the protesting people that the kidnapping of the workingmen was sanctioned by the White House and would have the support of the national administration. A more shameful perversion of public power never blackened the pages of history. This national scandal shows up the president's two-faced character so clearly and convincingly that it leaves not so much as a pinhole for escape. It is a damning indictment of not only the president, but the whole brood of plutocrats, promoters, and grafting politicians who have been looting this nation for years. There is one among these illuminating epistles which I want to burn in the minds of the working class dupes who've been bowing in the dust before this blustering bully of the White House. Quote, personal, October 1st, 1904. My dear Mr. Harriman, a suggestion has come to me in a roundabout way that you do not think it wise to come to see me in these closing weeks of the campaign, but you are reluctant to refuse inasmuch as I have asked you. Now, my dear sir, you and I are practical men, and you are on the ground and know the conditions better than I do. If you think there is any danger of your visit to me causing trouble, or if you think there is nothing special I should be informed about, or any matter in which I could give aid, why, of course, give up the visit for the time being, and then, a few weeks hence, before I write my message, I shall get you to come down to discuss certain government matters not connected with the campaign. With regard, sincerely yours, signed Theodore Roosevelt." Unquote. Does not this brand the president with the duplicity of a tweed and the cunning of a quay? Would a president who is honest with the people clandestinely consort with the villain he characterizes as a liar and all that is vicious? The disclosures made in the secret correspondence stripped the president of the last shred of deception with which to cloak his perfidy. Perfidity. The mask is lifted and the exposure is complete. It is in the president's own handwriting in a letter to Harriman that would never have seen the light had not circumstances forced it upon the attention of a betrayed people. It is adroitly phrased, but its meaning is not in doubt. He knew Harriman then, as he knows him now, wanted his boodle, and insinuatingly coaxed him to sneak to the White House when no one was looking, and only after he was discovered did he denounce Harriman as a liar and fall into his usual fit of moral epilepsy. From now on, there will be a sharp decline in the stock of Theodore Roosevelt. The capitalist papers may continue to boom him as the only savior, and his corps of press agents at the White House may continue to grind out three-column stories about the awful conspiracy of his trusty friends to ruin him. But his bubble is pricked, and the cheap glory in which he reveled is departing forever. The people have been sadly deceived for a time, but the march of events is opening their eyes. Only the very ignorant and foolish believe that a president who has surrounded himself with Wall Street darlings as cabinet ministers has any serious designs on the trusts. The rhyme, root, and Roosevelt combination is ideal. It speaks for itself, and with such shining lights as Taft, Cortelieu, Knox, and Paul Morton surrounding it, all lingering doubt is removed and the fool's paradise is in the full blaze of its glory. Space will not permit a review of the personnel of the president's official family, at least two of whom, had the law been enforced, would now be in penitentiary. The story of President Roosevelt and Paul Morton, if truthfully told, would make a luminous chapter in railroad rascality and political jobbery. It was to this notorious strike-breaker and self-confessed criminal that Roosevelt issued a bill of moral rectitude long as Pope's essay that landed him into the $80,000 a year insurance graft he now holds down. There is in this promotion the very climax of the irony of Boodle. 
Paul Morton, who began as a strikebreaker on the CB&O and reared a monument to theft at Hutchinson, Kansas, and left his trail of crime all the way from the Mississippi to the Pacific, is fit indeed to be the cabinet associate and confidential chum of a president who puts him at the head of the company whose funds were stolen to buy his election. William H. Taft is another of the elect, and it is easy to understand why Roosevelt has decided to make this illustrious son his successor as president of the United States and is now grooming him with the patronage of the national administration. Taft is a man after Roosevelt's own heart. Among his early acts as a judge, he fined the bricklayers of Cincinnati $2,000 for going on a strike. He was next whirled to Toledo by special train and ordered by the Toledo, Ann Arbor, and North Michigan Railroad to issue an injunction binding and gagging and striking engineers and firemen and locking their leader up in jail, and he complied with alacrity. From that time on, it has been smooth sailing for the accommodating judge, and there is not a bloated plutocrat in the land who would not hail with joy the election of William Taft as president. He would be almost as acceptable to those vultures as Roosevelt himself. The manner in which President Roosevelt manipulates the Supreme Court by bestowing lucrative offices upon the sons and other relatives and friends of its dignitaries can only be hinted at here, but will receive due attention later on. The case of ex-Senator Burton is an instance in point. Other senators had taken thousands in similar cases to Burton's paltry few hundred dollars, but Burton was marked by Roosevelt for refusing to crook the knee to the Sugar Trust and pursued with merciless ferocity until he was lodged behind prison bars. The president did not have a call to go after his old friends, Chauncey Depew and Thomas Platt, with the same virtuous passion to see crime punished and criminals jailed. When Roosevelt was making his continental campaign in the palatial special trains furnished free by the railroad trust, he stopped at Abilene, Kansas, the home of the then Senator Burton, and opened his speech there in these words, quote, I am glad to be at home, at the home of the senior Senator from Kansas, and am delighted to meet and greet his neighbors and friends. I want to say that no man in this world has done more, and I had almost said as much to place me where I am now than your distinguished Senator, unquote fine way the president had of showing his gratitude. Burton should have known better and taken warning. When Roosevelt gets that near to a man, something is going to happen. My dear is then due to be metamorphosed with startling suddenness into an atrocious liar. Roosevelt can brook no rivalry. He is the self-appointed central luminary in the solar system. All others must contend with being fireflies. He must violate uh, all traditions uh, and smash all precedents. He is spectacular beyond the wildest dreams. He must have the center of the stage and hold the undivided attention of the audience. Any stunt will do when the interest lags. A familiar turn with a prize fighter, a gunman, is always good for an encore. Nothing is overlooked. A dash to Panama with a fleet of battleships and a battery of cameras and a squad of artists and reporters is good for thousands of columns about the marvelous virility and fertility of the greatest president since Washington. He is followed with minute and eager details as he darts from cellar to roof, inspects every shingle, wears a solemn expression, throws a shovel full of coal into the furnace, snatches a bite from a working man's pail, shakes hands with a startled section man, and is off like a flash to look after some other section of the planet that it may not drop out of its shining orbit. Mighty savior of the human race. Such is Theodore Roosevelt, the president who condemns working men as murderers when they are objectionable to the trusts that control his administration. Archbishop, Archbishop Ireland, the plutocratic prelate, will cheerfully certify to Roosevelt as the anointed of the Lord. And this will make another interesting chapter for a later review a chapter that will deal with Ireland as the political as well as spiritual advisor of Jim Hill in the Great Northern, and of court decisions awarding him thousands of acres of land and making of the alleged follower of the Tramp of Galilee a multi-millionaire, a chapter that will tell of a high priest sounding the political keynote 
to his benighted followers in exchange for a promised voucher for a red hat to be worn in a land of freedom in which the state and church are absolutely divorced. Only a few of the facts about Roosevelt and his regime have been here stated, but enough to satisfy all honest men that Theodore Roosevelt is the friend of the enemies and the enemy of the friends of this republic. Wow. All right, Eugene Debs has been given his time. What about a little rejoinder from Theodore Roosevelt? Uh, Theodore Roosevelt on the 23rd, uh, 22nd of April, 1907, uh, two days after the publication of uh, Debs' article, which certainly would have been uh, uh, immediately uh, uh, shown to the president, but the president uh, receiving all sorts of criticism from uh, the labor movement and the left uh, on this particular issue of uh, uh, the imprisonment of uh, Haywood and his uh, colleagues in Idaho and the trial that was now uh, proceeding in 1907 in Idaho. So uh, Theodore Roosevelt writing uh, uh, to one Honor Jackson, uh, the chairman of a, uh, an organization referenced uh, in the uh, letter from uh, Roosevelt, the Cook County Moyer Haywood Pettibone Conference, uh, Mr. Honor Jackson of 667 West Lake Street in Chicago, uh, being uh, addressed by this letter, but certainly the letter being meant for uh, dissemination and publication uh, as uh, Roosevelt's uh, position uh, on the uh, issue in Idaho. The White House, Washington. Dear Sir, April 22nd, 1907. I have received your letter of the 10th instant in which you enclose the draft of the formal letter which is to follow. I have been notified that several delegations bearing similar requests are on the way hither. In the letter to you on behalf of the Cook County in the letter that you, on behalf of the Cook County Moyer Haywood Conference, protest against certain language I used in a recent letter, which you assert to be designed to influence the course of justice in the case of the trial for murder of Messrs. Moyer and Haywood. I entirely agree with you that it is improper to endeavor to influence the course of justice, whether by threats or in any similar manner. For this reason, I have regretted most deeply the action of such organizations as your own in undertaking to accomplish this very result in the very case of which you speak. For instance, your letterhead is headed, quote, Cook County Moyer Haywood Pettibone Conference, with the headlines, quote, Death cannot, will not, and shall not claim our brothers, unquote. This shows that you and your associates are not demanding a fair trial or working for a fair trial but are, denouncing, are announcing in advance that the verdict shall only be one way and that you will not tolerate any other verdict. Such action is flagrant in its impropriety, and I join heartily in condemning it. But it is a simple absurdity to suppose that because any man is on trial for a given offense, he is therefore to be freed from all criticism upon his general conduct and manner of life. In my letter to which you object, I referred to a certain prominent financier, Mr. Harriman, on the one hand, and to Messrs. Moyer, Haywood, and Debs on the other, as being equally undesirable citizens. It is as foolish to assert that this was designed to influence the trial of Moyer and Haywood as to assert that it was designed to influence the suits that had been brought against Mr. Harriman. I neither expressed nor indicated any opinion as to whether Messrs. Moyer and Haywood were guilty of the murder of Governor Stunenberg. If they are guilty, they certainly ought to be punished. If they are not guilty, they certainly ought not to be punished. But no possible outcome, either of the trial or the suits, can affect my judgment as to the undesirability of the type of citizenship of those whom I mentioned. Messrs. Moyer, Haywood, and Debs stand as representatives of those men who have done as much to discredit the labor movement as the worst speculative financiers or most unscrupulous employers of labor and debauchers of legislatures have done to discredit honest capitalists and fair-dealing businessmen. They stand as the representatives of those men who by their public utterances and manifestos, by the utterances of the papers they control or inspire, and by the words and deeds of those associated with or subordinated to them, habitually appear as guilty of incitement to or apology for bloodshed and violence. 
If this does not constitute undesirable citizenship, then there can never be any undesirable citizens. The men whom I denounce represent the men who have abandoned that legitimate movement for the uplifting of labor, with which I have the most hearty sympathy. They have adopted practices which cut them off from those who lead this legitimate movement. In every way, I shall support the law-abiding and upright representatives of labor, and in no way can I better support them than by drawing the sharpest possible line between them on the one hand, and on the other hand, those preachers of violence who are themselves the worst foes of the honest laboring man. Let me repeat my deep regret that any body of men should so far forget their duty to the country as to endeavor by the formation of societies and in other ways to influence the course of justice in this matter. I have received many such letters as yours. Accompanying them were newspaper clippings announcing demonstrations, parades, and mass meetings designed to show that the representatives of labor, without regard to the facts, demand the acquittal of Messrs. Hayward and Moyer. Such meetings can, of course, be designed only to coerce court or jury in rendering a verdict, and they therefore deserve all the condemnation which you and your letters say should be awarded to those who endeavor improperly to influence the course of justice. You would, of course, be entirely within your rights if you merely announced that you thought Mrs. Moyer and Haywood were desirable citizens, though in such case I should take frank issue with you and should say that, wholly without regard to whether or not they were guilty of the crime for which they are now being tried, they represent as thoroughly undesirable a type of citizenship as can be found in this country, a type which, in the letter to which you so unreasonably take exception, I showed not to be confined to any one class, but to exist among some representatives of great capitalists, as well as among some representatives of wage workers. In that letter, I condemned both types. Certain representatives of the great capitalists in turn condemned me for including Mr. Harriman in my condemnation of Messrs. Moyer and Haywood. Certain of the representatives of labor in their turn condemned me because I included Messrs. Moyer and Haywood as undesirable citizens together with Mr. Harriman. I am as profoundly indifferent to the condemnation in one case as in the other. I challenge as a right the support of all good Americans, whether wage workers or capitalists, whatever their occupational creed or in whatever portion of the country they live, when I condemn both the types of bad citizenship which I have held up to reprobation. It seems to me a mark of utter insincerity to fail thus to condemn both. To apologize for either robs the man thus apologizing of all right to condemn any wrongdoing in any man, rich or poor, in public or in private life. You say you ask for a square deal for Messrs. Moyer and Haywood. So do I. When I say square deal, I mean a square deal to everyone. It is equally a violation of the policy of the square deal for a capitalist to protest against denunciation of a capitalist who is guilty of wrongdoing, and for a labor leader to protest against the denunciation of a labor leader who has been guilty of wrongdoing. I stand for equal justice to both. And so far as in my power lies, I shall uphold justice. Whether the man accused of guilt has behind him the wealthiest corporations, the greatest aggregations of riches in the country, or whether he has behind him the most influential labor organizations in the country. Very truly yours, Theodore Roosevelt. When we on Thursday review citizenship in a republic, the man in the arena is the man willing to stand up and fight for what's right. Uh, the language, of course, a bit archaic. Uh, I won't change the language of the original when I read it on Thursday. The man in the arena, uh, uh, Benet Brown, a popular writer and speaker today, uh, she uh, changes the language to the person in the arena when she challenges us to dare greatly, as Theodore Roosevelt uh, challenged us to dare. A uh, little postscript uh, on uh, Haywood. Uh, Haywood uh, and uh, Moyer and Pettibone, uh, my recollection is that um, on appeal, uh, the convictions were uh, reversed in this case. But then in 1918, um, after a great schism in the 
socialist, uh, uh, the uh, uh, trade unions and the international workers of the world and, and after the Wilson administration uh, suppressed uh, the uh, socialist labor movement during World War I. Of course, Eugene Debs is uh, arrested, uh, put on trial, and and uh, uh, runs for the presidency in 1920 from federal prison. Um, and Bill Haywood, Big Bill Haywood, is arrested in 1918 in a great sweep of over 100 uh, far-left labor leaders. Uh, he and the others are put on trial, and uh, Haywood is convicted uh, 20 years in federal prison, is his sentence. While out on appeal, Bill Haywood skipped uh, uh, the trial, uh, left for the Soviet Union, would live the rest of his life in a small apartment in Moscow. Uh, he would uh, be an advisor to Lenin uh, for a time. Uh, at his cremation, half of his remains were returned to his family in the United States. Half of his uh, uh, cremated remains were entombed in the walls of the Kremlin. There's a uh, plaque, uh, a memorial for Big Bill Haywood uh, and other leaders of the uh, labor movement in the early 20th century in the backyard of the Eugene Debs home uh, in Terre Haute, or do you say Terre Haute, Indiana, the home of Indiana State University. Debs would return from the campaign trail uh, often to a hero's welcome, 10,000 or more of the local citizens uh, uh, parading him to his home. The home has been uh, built up around in downtown uh, Terre Haute, but the backyard is a memorial to these labor leaders, in, including uh, Samuel Gompers and Mother Jones, and a plaque to Big Bill Haywood, uh, he who would spend his last days in the Soviet Union. The life of Theodore Roosevelt brought to you through uh, some of his writings, and in this case, uh, a rather lengthy reading from one of his greatest critics, the socialist opponent, Eugene Debs. I mentioned a book the other day, uh, in addition to uh, Island of Vice and Commissioner Roosevelt, I had forgotten the author. Edward Cohn uh, is the author of this book about the 1896 heat wave, Hot Time in the Old Town. Uh, that's uh, wonderfully taken from the uh, theme song of Roosevelt's Rough Riders. Hot Time in the Old Town Tonight. Uh, the uh, subtitle, The Great Heat Wave of 1896 the making of Theodore Roosevelt. As I mentioned, this uh, follows uh, William Jennings Bryan's uh, 1896 campaign across the United States, seemingly uh, in the midst of this heat wave, uh, a great deal of uh, loss of uh, human and animal life, uh, uh, a, a small dust bowl occurring throughout the country along its farms. Uh, it's uh, written, interestingly, Edward Cohn at the time of the uh, publication, and fairly recent, I think, uh, he... Uh, he was uh, in the uh, uh, the professor of American history and chair of the American Culture and Literature Department at Bill Kent University. Uh, he uh, lives in Ankara, Turkey. I think just a, a little bit of the uh, proof that uh, Theodore Roosevelt is providing for uh, material for for historians yet, and many good books uh, to be written and read. Tomorrow we'll go to what Theodore Roosevelt wrote about life in the Badlands and. Uh, we all need a little break uh, from the uh, hard-hitting uh, politics. We'll, we'll uh, read a bit about what Theodore Roosevelt said about these beautiful badlands. And we'll do so on a day when the temperature is going to go above 70 degrees in the badlands, perhaps for the first day this spring. Things are greening up. The wildlife is out and about. Theodore Roosevelt National Park is closed uh, until May 9th uh, in the current circumstances. But work is being done in Medora. We're getting ready to host you and we're all ready to join together in Medora. We'll do so. Across from me, Point to Point Park uh, being uh, worked on. Uh, the Screaming Eagle zip line uh, already built, a new putt-putt golf course being built and eventually a purple splash pad and lazy river along which will be told the story of the capture of redhead Mike Finnegan and the Boat Thieves, the program with which we began this month of April. Uh, so many days ago. Take care, be well. Thank you for all of your comments and questions. I will be getting to them in future programs. Uh, I've enjoyed corresponding with you through the comments at uh, Medora ND and at Teddy Roosevelt Show. My thanks to everyone at the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. Again, tune in later this week. Follow us along Tuesday in the Badlands and 
And then uh, Thursday, wonderfully, uh, the speech, Citizenship in a Republic, featuring the man in the arena. And then uh, Friday, two speeches, one dedicating uh, the uh, cornerstone of what would be called Roosevelt Arch in Yellowstone National Park and the reinterment of the remains of Captain John Paul Jones at the Naval Academy Chapel in Annapolis, Maryland. Have a great week. Do what you can with what you have where you are. Keep your eyes on the stars and your feet planted firmly on the ground. Believe you can, and you're halfway there. See you tomorrow morning for Teddy Talks. Bye-bye.